we are here to study the books of the Bible. Please open up the opening pages so you can always glance and know the opening two pages gives you a list of all the books of the Bible. That we know. Five books of the Moses, 19 books of the Prophets, 11 books of the Writings. I want everybody here to be very familiar. Most of us are with these books of the Bible. This we know. Our interest is to understand the biblical message. What is this biblical message all about? What are, in other words, the ideas, ideals, and values of this Bible known in Hebrew as Tanakh? I explained it a few times. Tanakh refers to Tanakh, Nun Chaf in Hebrew, Torah, Nivim, Ketuvim. Five books of Moses, 19 books of the Prophets, and the 11 books of the Ketuvim. Why do we want to know all this? Well, obviously, you all said, first we could connect, all kinds of reasons why we want to know this message of the Bible. However, I added, we said, because we have a fundamental message to communicate to the world, we have a mission to engage in. What is that mission? We call it either tikkun olam, you want to mend the world, you want to improve the world, you want to impact upon the world. Or call it, we want to usher in the messianic era. We want to bring the world to that state of harmony, tranquility, and peace. And of course, in the last six weeks, we all experienced, hopefully, a way in which we as individuals, either through random acts of kindness, or through teaching our own families, or teaching others, we can impact upon others such that ultimately we will improve the world. I would dare say that no person should pass through the world. God gives us 80, 90, hopefully 120 years. Nobody should pass through this world without impacting upon the world, without furthering that agenda of God, which was stated 3,300 years ago, namely, Jews, you have an extra obligation. You have an obligation of impacting and changing the world. Now, lest you all think that that's a foolish idea that I'm saying to you right now, and say, what, is he crazy? It should be obvious to you now, and we discussed this, that in the last 4,000 years, we have extraordinarily impacted upon the world. You all know that already. Our ethics, our values, whether it's the welfare state in contemporary America, which is a biblical idea, we discussed that, or the idea of monotheism, or ethical monotheism, or the idea of striving for the ideal of harmony and tranquility in the world, that's an Ayishayahu, Bet, which is on the wall of, where? The UN building, at the Dachmashal Plaza. It's our idea. The idea of Salem and King. It's our idea. The notion that every human being who's a good human being, irrespective of his religion, the kids the seven Noahide commandments, yes, we are the only religion in the world who have ever taught that somebody who's not part of our religion, a Gentile, he gets a portion in the world to come. It's a sounding statement. No other religion, especially Christianity and Islam, will say to the, to the contrary. Christianity says, if you don't believe in Yeshua, you are eternally damned. Imagine that. Imagine that if you go to a Christian and he looks at you, you're a Jew. The guy back there is a Jew, and he's eternally... Imagine, how would you relate to that person? If you take Christianity seriously, look how strange it is. Take Christianity seriously, and you all know Christians in business, and he's a good religious Christian, and he sees you one second, he sees you, you know something, you're eternally damned by his religion. That's a horrifying thing. They always want to save you. And, and they, therefore they want to save you. They're nice guys. They're wonderful people. Nice people. 
To the extent they want to save you, they said in the Middle Ages, we are burning your body to save your soul. So that's it. They said, the greatest act of chesed and kindness. It's an astounding to what degree a religion can be perverted. So that degree where the Christian will in fact say, I'm going to burn your body to save your soul. And did it 5,000, 10,000, who knows how many tens of thousands of times they burned Jewish bodies out of the goodness of their hearts. Astounding. We Jews say no. We Jews say just be civilized human beings. What does that mean? Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, etc., etc., etc. Seven of the commandments, you're a good person, have one of push the world to come, you're fine. The only religion that says that. In addition to which, remember that we are the only religion with an ongoing halakhic system or legal system that has been in practice for the last 3,300 years. For 3,000 years, we have the only ongoingly practiced legal system called Halakha Jewish Law, which emerges from the Bible. Yes, it is developed in the Talmud, but it emerges from Tanakh, from the Bible, from Tanakh. That's astounding. So we've impacted upon the world. All that you know already. Now we're going to go on. We have attempted to give you in a nutshell, the ideas, ideals, and values in the 19 books of the prophets. Very important. Now we're going to go on, which is on page, <laughs> again, this is why the Roman Empire fell, because nobody can read their numbers, VII. Right? On page VII, you see the book of Ketuvim, known as the Writings, which is the third leg of that Hebrew word, word Tanakh. Tudan and even Ketuvim. Here you have some of the most famous books of the Bible, and we too want to understand the religious message of these books of the Bible. We want to understand them. Because this too shall impact upon the world. Especially the first book, called Tehillim or Psalms, which is in a Gentile world, one book that is known probably better than 90% of the Jews that you know. The average non-Jew, the average Christian, knows the book of Psalms better, by heart in some cases, better than 90% of Jewish people. It's just striking. It's our book, yet we don't know it. Even to the extent where I have a fun time with, sometimes with classes, and I say to them, what is the most famous chapter of Tehillim? Guess here, here. So, okay, so now, you know something about American culture, yes, in a Christian country, yes. So I say to them, well, this book of Tehillim, right? Very nice book, you know? Yes. Okay, forget Tehillim for a second, I tell them. Say, where does the phrase, Oh Lord, why have you forsaken me? So if they are somewhat sophisticated, Oh my Lord, why have you, why have you forsaken me? They say, that's well known. Where does it come from? Yes. No. <laughs> Yeshua on the, cor- on the cross. Oh. That's what Yeshua said on the cross. Okay. So that phrase, there are 1.8 billion Christians in the world, I will bet you that 1.5 billion know that, where that's from. They'll say that's what Yeshua on the cross. Right? 1.5 billion, they know that. And they say, well, where's it from? They don't know. Some of them do, some of them don't. Where's it from? It's from, of course, Tehillim Kafet, which we'll get to in a few minutes. So it's our phrase, it's our pasuk, it's our words, and yet most Jews do not know where that phrase is from, unfortunately. 
Thank you. You want me to sing rather than... Oh, that's even better. Very nice. Very appropriate. Thank you. It's very appropriate. How do you plan that? How do you know? Lim Tehilim today. Right. Very good. Yeah, this is very nice. He sings beautifully. Okay, good. So, the book of Tehilim is one of the most famous of all biblical books known in the Gentile as well, of course, in the Jewish world. The Jewish world is known because it is a source of our prayers. Most of our tefillot, most of our prayers come from the book of Tehilim. Although, of course, remember the distinction that all the books of the Bible, other Kituvim, are from God to man. Book of Kituvim are from man to God. It's an essential distinction we have to remember. Put differently, one might say that these are homeotropic. You remember that from photosynthesis? Right. Never remember. Without you, Rabbi. A year ago, you studied this, didn't you? In, in high school. <laughs> 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 you remember this event? Life that it has a tendency towards. This is, is this homeotropic. When God has a tendency towards mankind, this is theotropic, where we are speaking upwards to God, where our focus is on God. Theotropic, have a tendency towards, right? Or you might say this is theocentric, which means the center, the key over here is Hashem, is God. And over here this is homeocentric, which means it starts from a human being. You see that these two terms are applicable to this. But what you have to realize is that what we're going to be studying now is not really the word of God. That ended with the last Navi, the last prophet, the man, last man to whom Hashem spoke, namely, Malachi, in the year 450 before the Common Era. Those are the last words God spoke to humanity. At that point, what does God say? You're on your own. I've given you all the tools to manage life and create a society that emphasizes what value would you say. What do you think is the greatest value that God wants us to implement in society? Excellent. And everything that flows from that. Excellent. That's exactly the right answer. My whole entire trip here was worth his one answer. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. I did not. That's the point. Kids come to me, I want you to know, 20 years later, say, I know what, what you're all, Taylor Middle King. Yes, everybody in my shoe, Taylor Middle King. Look at the journal that, that, that she'll put out, which is a beautiful journal. Every other page is Taylor Middle King. Because that's really what I've been teaching. Because I was taught that, and I think it is the most powerful and most important message that the Jews have to give to the world. Namely, that every being is created in the image of God, which is every person is infinitely valuable, every human being is unique and irreplaceable. That we've discussed. That we know. So now, God says, with all these tools, I want you to go out to the world and create a society that's based on Salem Elohim. But what does that mean, actually? Well, it means that if you are really hungry, and it's not dignified for you to go hungry, because a poor, slovenly, hungry person is not a dignified human being, what's your job? Give him food. In a movement at the end of the 19th century, by William G. Sumner, he started a movement called Social Darwinism. What does that mean? Survival of the fittest. Survival of the fittest in the human realm. Which don't help the weak because they they should die out. Social Darwinism was an amazingly powerful movement end of the 19th century. You can't make a living. Too bad. See you. See ya. That's it. As opposed to that, 
Torah is exactly the opposite of that. Torah wants you to go out and help that person. To the extent where I've helped you this year. You blew the call. You were lazy again. I helped you again and again and again and again. Now comes the seventh year of help. Do I have to help you again? Have to give you money to buy a bunch of seeds? I have to do it all over again. But now the seventh year happens. What happens in the seventh year? I gave you money for six years to go buy seeds, to plant your food. You didn't water the crops. You didn't get up, get up on time. You were lazy and all that. So you lost the crops I've seen. So now what happens? Seventh year. What's going to happen in the seventh year? I forgive all the loans. What an absurd idea. So anti-capitalism. I forgive all the loans. It's astounding. Why? Because what I'm saying to us over here, that if we don't forgive all the loans, what's going to happen? You will create an enmeshed poverty class. Because between paying back my loans and, and creating your future, you won't be able to make it. So give the person a whole new start. Forgive all the loans. It's astounding how that works out. Now, of course, an extension of that in the business world is what? What laws of? Chapter 11. Is that the same as bankruptcy? I don't know chapter 11. Is that the same bankruptcy? Same, same thing. Reorganization. Okay. No, but more. No, what's, what's chapter bankruptcy? Seven. Yeah, seven. That's seven. That's it. So it's seven, not eleven. Eleven is. You're a businessman. You gotta know these things. I don't know these things. I hope not. I'm not gonna go bankrupt. I mean, I don't. You know, I can't. Right? Is that true? I cannot go bankrupt. Seven lets you reorganize. Seven means it's over. So now, chapter seven is you have a right. It's American law. It's an amazing idea in American law. What does chapter seven really say? You have a right to forget all that. Start fresh. That's an ethical idea. Sorry? Not so, not so fresh. Why not? Very hard to get credit Oh, that's not right. That shouldn't happen. You come to me, the other problem. I'll give you credit. Yeah, what's this? But you're not defaulting on loan. In chapter 7, you're not defaulting. You are. No. You are. Oh, but you're allowed to do it. Yeah. Well, so that's an ethical... No you're being protected. Okay. You're being protected. Right. Okay, good. So however you, saw, however you decide that... It's amazing law. Look at the ethical implications of that. That a person has a right to start all over again. That's called teshuvah. That's called uh, whatever biblical term you want to use. But that's a biblical idea. Right? So this is the way that we're impacting upon, upon the world. Right? So now, in the books of Tehillim, there is a religious message that's going to continuously impact upon the world that we want to see happen. Right? Let's look at the book of Tehillim and see what ideas are in this book. In the same way Torah tells about Salem Elohim. And the same way that God says, I want you to build a society based on Salem Elohim, let's say. Right? Let's look at the finish now. So too in Tehillim, there are religious ideas, ideals and values that Hashem wants us to know in order to continue to impact. The original ideas of the first five books and 19 books are the ideas of God to man. God says now, here's the ideas, here's the books, go out and build society. The books of Ketuvim are the reaction of human beings hearing and seeing those ideas in action. Whereas the first 19 books in the Bible, and Bible story, 24 books of the Bible, that's God's ideas. They're sort of like, you might call it in theory. God tells it to you, did you do it or not do it? 
the latter books, Aketuvim, those are rel- religiously inspired people who are reacting to life's events, we'll discuss this in a minute, who are reacting to life's events with those ideas in place. Let me give you concrete examples of what we're talking about. Right? One question. Yeah, please. God gave us the Bible, right? So when we read the Bible, it's God's Word. It was the whole Bible. The 24 books, no? No. He gave us 24 books, the prophets. But the last books... Right? The last books are religious messages, right? Right. Inspired individuals. But when we are... Now, we are praying to God the reverse... And God giving us the, the right. prayers. Now we are praying to God. Now who Which is the Who exactly my next point? Oh, correct. The prayers are our reaction or our heartfelt response to God's presence. In other words, the first twenty-four books, five of Moses, ninth to the prophets. Right? That's God's words sure. to us. Right. It's the opening of a dialogue. I didn't say monologue, a dialogue. Where do we respond? When do we answer? The other books. The dialogue happens when we respond to God's words or to God's presence. Who is we? Any of us. No, any human being. The one that, who wrote the Hinnim? Okay, good. So these are, what I would say, inspired personalities. A Navi who wrote those 19 books and Moshe wrote those other five, say five books, a Navi is a person who is, has a heightened religious sensitivity. There are human beings who are extraordinarily special. In the area of IQ, people who are idiot savants. What's an idiot savant? Yep. You're incredibly... Score like you'd score high in one subject, but fail off the charts. Off the charts, like you, you're. It's more than that. Excel in something. More than excel. Just. It, you're, it is a is somebody that can take the number eight hundred ninety-two thousand four hundred twenty-one times two hundred ninety-two thousand and four and multiply and have the answer like that, right? Without even snapping his fingers. It, the brain works weirdly sometimes. That's called it is a Yet he cannot tie a shoelace. It is about somebody, these people exist, whose brains just have an automatic calculating system built into the brain. Sorry? Right. Movie? Right. Yeah. Was yeah. it about a genie? Yeah. Yeah. Numbers. Oh, really? And yes. Poker playing cards Tom Cruise. We'll see it. The Queen? Yeah. 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 Got it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Check. So that's a, that's a great movie. I'm so happy you mentioned that because now we know what we're talking about. So now in the same way that there are people that have IQs off the charts, probably Einstein's IQ was off the charts. Although it was not an idiot savant. But his IQ, in other words, he was able to conceptualize things that we cannot even conceive of. And he seems to have been so right so much of the time it's astounding. But he couldn't keep a happy marriage. Also true, which is interesting. Right. In the same way, there are people that have very high... What? Spiritual... No, 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 before that. I'm going to do that in a second. Besides intellectual, emotional IQ, it's just come to light. There are people that have EQs, emotional IQs, where they are extraordinarily sensitive to human beings, an emotionally high IQ. I see this every day of my life. Is that a good way or a bad way? Either. Either. 
There are people that are emotional idiots. They always say the wrong things to their children, to their spouse, to their, just stupid. Example given. I have a guy in my office a few years ago who um, left the shul and his kid comes, he comes home from work, he's really tired, comes home from Manhattan, all that stuff, and, where, and his kid comes and wants to hug him and says, get away, I'm tired. Oh. Now he says, this is a five-year-old kid and he has a ten-year-old kid, get away, I'm tired. Give me 20 minutes to, to space out. This kid wants a hug, wants, wants a kind word. Say, get away, I'm tired, I've got to be alone. His kid buys him a birthday present. Right? It was a leather jacket, I remember. This goes back 12 or 15 years. How much you pay for it? Too much. I'm, I'm unhappy with it. Yeah, you know, whatever they paid for, $100 for it, whatever it was. So he threw in the kid's face. That's an emotional idiot. Right? Very foolish. Your kid needs you to emotionally connect. On the other hand, there are people that have very high emotional IQs, who are sensitive, who are understanding, who hear your message even before it's spoken, who know how to deal with a kid in crisis. The kid comes home, shook out, the base is loaded. What do you say? I want to tempt this one, fight, shoot them down. <laughs> you, know, you know you can't win this one, right? Yeah. Even Mickey Mantle did it one time. No, wrong message. <laughs> Mickey Man at the end. Even I did it at one time. Well, I thought Mickey Man well, did it. a baseball player. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what, you, well, what if you didn't do it? Say you lie. You tell him the drash. You tell him the drash. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's really lying. You, you, you try to analogize. You remember that creative exegesis that I said before? Yeah. The drash is not lying, God forbid. It's not a lie. But Dadash is reading the text in a certain way. Is that a lie? Telling stories that aren't true. Who said it had to be true? Who said every story you tell your kid is true? You should see some of these that tell my kids. <laughs> we, go, we, go, we, go a lot, we go a lot of funny places. Dad, you really were the first one on the moon? No, right. Not exactly that. No, but you, you have to create an answer that's going to satisfy him emotionally. Grief counseling. One of the most important things a rabbi might do is get a person through a very difficult, emotionally trying situation. Right? Let's say, for example, about two, three months ago, I had somebody that wanted to die. He was sick, he was ill, he wanted to die. My job was to want him to live. Now, let's say I told him a midrash about myself or about somebody else. Would that midrash have been a lie? If I saved his life, if I gave him energy to live. You might call it a, call it a lie by myself or whoever it was, or you might say that's a great person for giving that person the energy to lie, even if you had to fudge the facts yeah, a get, bit. You got forgiven. Right. That's what you had to do. So these areas of the rabbinate where you either grieve counseling or giving the person the energy to live even though he's very sick. Right? And one of the things that I said to him is that in in a Two year, a year and a half, two years ago, in 9-11, three and a half thousand people didn't get a second chance. You had this illness, I had this illness, we got a second chance. What do you want to do with it? I didn't lie to him. But I may have shared feelings with him that weren't exactly my feelings at that time or whatever it was, but I had to get it to that point where he wants to live. Right? Critically important. So it wasn't a lie. I thought, 
Maybe I thought. Tell your son that you did that exact thing. That's no, I tell my answer to the moon. I didn't tell him that. No, I'm saying that. Oh, yeah. I shook out the bases loaded. We all shook at one point or other. Depends also. Let's say I say I shook out the bases loaded and I made him feel like a human being, like a Salem king. So, again, it's, it's not as if. Um, it's not as if it's a lie per se. You, it's, it, use it as a metaphor. You failed the test. So, however you're going to creatively explain that to your child, you've done something good. Right? Because you want to save that kid's soul. So again, emotional IQ is when you know how to answer your child in a way that's going to eventually make him feel like a better human being rather than a failure in life. If you don't have the right words, this kid who's 8 years old or 10 years old, whatever it may be, who missed the last shot, struck out, what's he going to say at the end? I'm a failure for life. And who knows what experience becomes his ongoing way that he views a life. I'm a failure. I always fail. That's what he tell you. Now, again, the wrong answer would be, no, you're successful, you're good, you're this and that. But he may not be always successful. So you have to be smart as a parent to be able to get him through this emotional crisis. People with high emotional IQs can do it. People with dumb things, you stink, you struck out, what kind of person are you? You embarrass me. I know people told their kids that. That's true. I was watching my kid play in the soap He was six years old. And I saw a parent kick his kid because he made an house. <laughs> You're all laughing? That's right. We won't come at all. We won't come at all. Okay, so that's emotionally IQ. Now, in the same way there's intellectual IQ, emotional IQ, there's a moral IQ as well. People who always know the right thing to do. No matter how complex it might be, they have an intuitive sense the right way to handle a situation. Not to embarrass somebody. Not to hurt somebody's feelings. Whatever it may be. They know the right way to proceed. That's what we call a moral IQ. Right? Don't need to elaborate. Similarly, besides intellectual, emotional, and moral, I would say there's something you would call a spiritual IQ. There are some people that are incredibly spiritually dense. Just don't get it. Right? In the same way that a father at a base of him would say, cheat to win. That person is morally dense. Right? Cheat to win. Cheat is the most important thing in life. I mean, win is the most important in life, so they will cheat no matter what to win. Right? That's for somebody who's morally dense. A parent who, let's say, uh, tells his kid, steal the test, and all will Xerox it for you, and they'll give it to everybody, so you all do well. Morally dense. Right? That's true. It's a true story. Right? So that's one of those. So too spiritual. There are spiritually dense people, and people who are spiritually so sensitive to God's presence, whether it's Moshe Rabbeinu, any of the Nevi'im, they are spiritually sensitive people. Now, coming back to your point, the writers of the Ketuvim were spiritually elevated people. You might call it lower level of Navi or prophet, or you might call them just simply spiritually alive people. These people are what you would call the spiritual barometers of the age. They saw things and sent things that to them were so impactful they went home and wrote about it. And Tehillim will explain in a minute what they wrote about it. And they were identified. So we yes. Know they are. Yeah. yeah, not all. But in the same way that an artist might see a sunset. Right? And he would be able to take that sunset and paint it. If you're a poet, you go home and write a poem about it. Or love lost. Your boyfriend broke up with you. The girlfriend broke up with you. 
So what do you do? You go home and you write about it. A sensitive person might do that. You don't have to do that. But a sensitive person might go ahead and do something along those lines. And I'll ask you in a few minutes why they do that. Why do they paint about it? Is it to make money because they want to sell this painting? Oftentimes not. They're not commercial. The great painters were not commercial artists. But they did it to express part of their higher sensitive sensitivity to these issues. It's a release. It may be a release in a certain sense. All the pent-up energy, emotion, it's a way of expressing, externalizing those internal feelings that need to be externalized. So they write a poem, paint a picture, speak about it with somebody else. So these people who wrote the Ketuvim that you see in front of you, Tehillim, Mishle, Eyob, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, these are spiritually sensitive people who took life's experiences and had seen them through a religious framework. And what that means we'll say in a second. Yeah? I just want to add something to what you were talking mm-hmm. about a second ago. Mm-hmm. When they externalize those internal feelings, they also this large component of it is to share that, to share mm-hmm. with others. A need to share. Absolutely. It's expressive. It's expressive, expressive. Need to share with somebody else to communicate the feelings for twofold reasons. Either, as in the book of the Yog, Elihu says, I speak that I may find relief. It's one of the most comforting phrases that I've ever read in a biblical canon. I speak that I may find relief. Called Fish Elbach. Yeah, in Arabic it's Fish right. Correct. A human need to share, to communicate, not because I want to share with you, but I need to express those feelings to, for myself. I speak that I may find relief. People in crisis often need to speak to find relief. There is almost, one might say, in Rabbi words, a redemptiveness, there is redemption in the spoken word. Or that we'll get to later on. Let's look at Tehillim now. Tehillim is composed by various people, Gemaram B'Avatanah tell us, but most prominently by David HaMelech, King David, who of course lived, you should have this historical perspective a little bit, and we'll get to it hopefully next week, even more so, King David lived for 70 years. He died in 960 before the Common Era, which means he was born 1030 before the Common Era, and he ruled as king from the year 1000 to 960 before the Common Era. For 40 years he ruled. So he died at the end of 70 years old, and he was born in 1030 to 960 before the Common Era. He's the most prominent author of Tehillim, though there were others. Tzilalim Moshe, a person called Moshe. B'nai Korah, wrote some of the Tehillim. The different people composed these poetic statements at various points in life, which we'll talk about as we go on. But I want to focus on what David contributed to Tehillim. Now, <coughs> the Psalms of Tehillim are what we'll call masterpieces of religious literature. What does that mean? They're a masterpiece of religious literature. First of all, it means that they are very artistically created. There are two ways to say something. There are multiple ways of saying something. If you are gifted in one way or another, whether it's intellectually, emotionally, or morally, or spiritually, you can say the same message in a different way. 
Same message, different form. If you're intellectually brilliant, you might say E equals MC squared and communicate a whole universe of information. Excuse the pun. That little E equals MC squared is a whole universe of information in three little letters squared, right? And you can listen. You don't, you don't care what that is. Right. That's one hand. On the other hand, if you have the universe out there and you're not a brilliant scientist, but rather you're a poet, what would you say? And let's say you're a poet who has religious inclinations, which means you've been nurtured on the Quran and the Im. You're nurtured on all of these books over here, and now all of a sudden something happens to you in life and you are confronted by the universe out there. You're not going to say e equals MC square. What are you going to say, rather? Well, you'll see in a minute what he's going to say about that phenomenon. Right? And also, if you're a morally inclined person and you have a high moral IQ and you might see someone let's say take an interesting example walking on Tuesday and he pulls a flower right now what would you say if you saw somebody do that just pull the flower Nothing. you don't care that's where you're a dentist and not a poet. From your garden. Inconsiderate, not sensitive. Not sensitive. Why would you say he's not sensitive? He just pulled a flower. He pulled it for his mother. You know, never his mother. Mother, I could see that. My mother, for sure. I could see that. But no, no, no. He just pulled it out. Let me make it clearer. Instead of other people's property. Just pulling it from a... Yeah, let's say it's not David's flower. Right, because it's shooting. But let's say it's not David's flower. He's what? He said, no, that's a, He walked around, just pulled the up. Let's say kids do this all the time. They're outside and they see an ant. What do they do? Oof. Now, why do they do that? Power, ego, I'm not sure why. They like the crunchy. They like the crunchy. <laughs> <laughs> so eat Rice Krispies, same thing, if that's what it is. <laughs> that's why I don't live in Brooklyn. So, you now, my point of view is what would you tell your kids? If you show your kid stepping on ants outside, just see, ah, I got it, I got it, it's a game they play. Something, something wrong with that? Yeah. 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 What's wrong with that? Why? Why do you kill things and everything? It's fun. I enjoy it. It's a little disturbing. A little? Why is that a lot disturbing? sarcastic. Oh, okay, good. Similarly, did anybody over here ever find a bug in their house? Not that bug. Not that bug. And you caught it? My house, we catch bugs. And we put them outside. Unless the bug attacks first. That's true. No, no, I have to be honest about it. The bug attacks first, then... Emily's unhappy about roaches. Emily, I have to protect my wife. She's, yeah, that's a little bit more sensitive. Right. Most, most often, most times, this is true, we take cups, we have a whole plan. <laughs> we ring a bell, the whole family converges on the bus, one gets a plate, one gets a cup, you slide the plate on it, catch the cup, and then one opens the door, and I take it outside for outside. It works. And eight more fly in. But we got seven kids, so it all, it all works out. And then you might have to allow on the plate. <laughs> so usually we throw it out. Table plate. So this is true. Because we don't want to kill bugs. You know, I'm not sure, it just doesn't seem right. Why would I want to take another living item, whatever it may be? Now, the bug is alive, so we don't do that, right? Even a flower. I wouldn't be happy if my kids pulled flowers from growing randomly. They're not alive, alive, but they're alive, right? So I wouldn't be happy if somebody just smashing flowers. It's destructive. It's inappropriate. 
And you shouldn't be a fan of buying cut flowers because that's what that is. You have a problem with that? I don't give away flowers, say the truth, because I die. I don't like flowers. I like plastic flowers. Don't die. <laughs> I'm really, I know it's true. But I have not, a moral problem with Not a moral problem, no. Cut. I'm not that sensitive. No, they're being used. They're being used as So if they cut the flower in the street and bring it home and put it in water, is that okay? Uh, yeah. Okay, because you didn't specify that before, and I was thinking that. Okay. No, no feelings. That's right. Right. No, I'm, I'm reasonable about these things. But, but... My point is that a sensitive person relates to these issues differently. Now, there are people out there that will simply see an ant being crushed and do nothing. <laughs> yeah, but you make it sound like that's such a we bad thing. Because <laughs> 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 an uncle be bad or is that? You don't care one way or the other? Ant oh, yeah, yeah, the one. The I can't even sit with it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bug her, you'll be next. Yeah. No, I, no I, do, I do feel that way. I'd be very upset about that. But that means you just said that something called too sensitive. Agreed. You know, you I don't want to draw the line right now, but I agree with you. you, you yes, the bugs attack, I respond. I told you. They attack me, they're dead meat. They attack me. But otherwise, we want to be sensitive to God's growing things. Rav Kook, Rav Kook, who was one of the great chief rabbis of Israel, once made that comment, somebody that was walking, not sure that, and he pulled the flower and said, how did you do that? He was so spiritually sensitive, because the Kabbalists, the Mekubalim, have a heightened awareness and sensitivity to God's creation. Mekubalim. So they, he saw just, he pulled the flower. He was upset about it. Now, I wouldn't be that upset about it, but he, as a Mekubal, was sensitive to the souls, in quotes, in every living item, wherever it may be. So, of course, I'm not a Mikubal, I'm not a Kabbalist, so I don't have the same reaction. But there is an issue, as they put it before, of sensitivity to even flowers. You know, I would use flowers to beautify, of course, but I wouldn't randomly go and just take out a flower and just throw it down. Or kill an ant just like that. Right? I'm not going to do that. Okay? Now, my point over here is that David HaMelech, King David, was an extraordinarily sensitive religious personality... He reacts to life's issues, writing a masterpiece, that which is so artistic that it's easily memorizable, number one, that conveys a message that even goes a step beyond, and what's beyond? He's so inspirational by the way that he crafts his message that you are inspired by what he says. Meaning that if you were to have the very same life experiences, we'll talk about that in a minute, that he had, you would react the way he reacted. You are so inspired if you read him properly, if you understand Tehillim. Most often, most people read it through. I once had a situation, kind of upsetting, where at an Arayat, we read Tehillim. So what I try to do is I try to explain what we're going to do now, some of the chapters of Tehillim. Which I think is very inspirational, it's really meaningful, very important to do that. Somebody complained bitterly. <coughs> Absolutely not. We have to just simply read, we can't explain anything. Just read, 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 mindlessly. To me. He was very upset about it. Which I, look, he wants to what's traditionally done in Halad. Just read, read. You read, you read, you read, two chapters, just don't change a word. And I thought, tell the opposite. Let's explain what these are really about. No, just read. 
He was very upset about him. It was really an issue in the synagogue about that. Which I understand where he's coming from. He wants what's done in Halab. They read, you read. Then it's explain. You don't explain. Okay. So, I respect what he's saying. I, I know where he's coming from. But for me, to understand the message of Tehillim is so much more important from where I'm coming from. So these are masterpieces that inspire masterpieces that convey a feeling and emotion so that you will empathize with the author and if you have that same experience then you would relate to it in that particular kind of a fashion extraordinary works if understood properly what are they selling? <laughs> good to see you now of course David Amelech comes out of the context of this book Therefore, he responds to all these events with a religious message. He, obviously, his framework, his framework is the values, the ideas, the ideals that all came from Tanakh. Right? Here, in Tehillim, we find that the form of the message and the content merged together to produce what we're calling a religious masterpiece. Form and content. Such that those who read these works are comforted. If that's the situation. You read this and you're comforted by the religious message that he expresses in this work. It's a religious masterpiece. Good point. Is it prophecy or nevuah? It is certainly not nevuah Moshe Rabbeinu. Prophecy on the highest level is Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy. As we explained a few weeks ago, it's when God communicates a message, Moshe is that clear piece of glass, and we'll say on one side is God's word, on the other side is God's word as well. The other nevuah, other than Moshe, which is Yahid Bamino, which is unique and alone, the other nevuah, heard God's message, but it was, they were a prism through which the light of the message was refracted. Therefore, the same message, but it's the same water in different colored flasks, if you will. Here in Tehillim, it's Nebu'ah, but an inspired personality who has this high religious sense, who crosses that boundary from the average human being to the more extraordinary human being, so the most extraordinary being who crosses that line and now is able to formulate experiences in a religious context which we will call inspired Nebuah. But different than the 19 <coughs> books of the Nebuah, different than the Moshe, different than the 19 books of, of the, of the Nebuah, all those are different. So it's, a, it's not yet Nebuah, let's say, but it's still an inspired personality. It's not God's word. It's not God's word at all. Correct. But it's an inspired religious message. And I'll go a step further than that, which is because it's a reflection of biblical values and ideas, in a sense, it's God's Word. In other words, David Amelech has absorbed all of Torah learning, all of the knowledge in these books, or whatever it may be, right? Let's assume whatever it may be, right? And what he re- reflects is. His reflections on it is, in a sense, God's message. That's why it's a religious message. Not his word. Not his direct word, for sure. Correct. Absolutely right. Good. Yeah, please. So what do we do 
when it seems that there's a quote from God in Tehillim, how do we understand it? Did he get that from some from another book? Example given. Phrasing? Yeah, probably. But I think it's 50. Where, uh, were, were I hungry, I would not tell you, for mine is the world and all it holds. Do I eat the flesh of gold or drink the blood of both? Sacrifice a thanks offering to God and pay your vows to the most part. Call upon me. Capital M. Okay, so that means trouble. I will rescue you and you shall honor me. And it, you know, it's, it's a quote. So I would say, yeah, good, good point. I would say that here he's. Paraphrasing? Paraphrasing. Certainly that is from Micha. A similar message is from Micha. Chapter 5 or 6. So, yes, David Melech is taking a religious value or idea or ideal and he's quoting. No, just paraphrasing a religious message. Right, so, okay. My real question is so, can we, when we read this, can we say, this is what God wants? Because I always say that about 50. But one second. Um, I would say it's heightened spirituality. It's inspired. It's quasi prophecy. It's almost prophecy. Not yet really Nebuah. Although Ram does view in his discussion of this in Morena Bukhim that they are a lower level of prophecy. They're not part of the Nebuim, remember. They're Ketuvim. So it does reflect biblical messages, biblical but values. Is it possible that it, it can cross the line sometimes? Then I don't think we put it in Ketuvim. The rabbis put it in Ketuvim. The rabbis who analyze all of these books and put Daniel the book of Daniel has all kinds of visions messianic visions and apocalyptic visions and all that we don't call them an avi we don't at the end the rabbi said this is the words of an inspired individual rather than the word of an avi so again again can we a message like this in 50 where, God, where basically it sounds like God doesn't want animal sacrifices he wants you to, to be contrite I think that's the correct. Ishayao nun head does the same right. thing. So, for example. So okay. So so it's reflecting so a biblical value. So we're comfortable to say that to it's learn from it. a real biblical value. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly my point. Correct. These books are inspired and provide religious framework because they reflect biblical values. Had he said the same thing and put it in the context of a pagan deity we would reject it. The rabbis went over all these books and every word and every letter of these books. I have proof. Not to go into it right now. But the rabbis who are known as the Baalei Mesorah, the masteries, over the period of 800 years, went over every single biblical letter. Right? And they approved. And they spoke about it. They discussed it. Some books they rejected. Ben Sira, Ochmat There are books in the New Testament that we rejected. Ochmat All these books, they said, these are not religious books these are the same people that we the rabbis and we might say that they, they also changed certain words to correct in the Tathomach the certain words they changed because they were insulting to God right. so they changed it so these rabbis who had a great perspective as to what God wants of us they're the ones who had rejected certain books but said certain books are problematic Shira Shirin problematic Zaskiel problematic Quill problematic yes take them don't take them at the end we took them that's going to that entire discussion so these rabbis went over every single letter, every single word, and they said, this whole is a good message. So then, so then to answer my question, what you just said, he's going to think that he answered this question by himself. Yeah. In order to that happen, isn't that, isn't that pretty good? You gave me an answer now. So this is, the, this is some group of rabbis who have rabbinic perspective on what God would want from us. 
No, I would say that, that yes to a degree, but of course the, the first 24 books is... If they, if they put it in here, if they choose, if they, if they chose to leave it in the back to make it part of Tanakh, right. then that's the message that those rabbis wanted to send to us. Correct. Incorporating those are the words of God. The, 20, the 25 books. Right. We're willing to give them the authority to tell us what God is. Yeah. So, that, so. It's a little bit more complex than that, but for now we'll say yes to that. Yes. Didn't they set a prerequisite of three or four things that books had to meet criteria? That the books had to meet to, to get into the Tanakh or else they were out. Like, like the apocryphal books didn't meet or it was missing one or another. I remember learning something like that. We don't have any place where the official process of canonization took place as described. We don't know any place in all of Talmudic literature where canonization is described or their deliberations. We have the Mishnah Mesech Yadayim, which is not our topic for tonight, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, which is Mishnah and Yadayim, not at all, right? So, and there they would discuss Shir Shirin, Kohelet, and Yechezkel. That's the only real discussion of canonization. But it's a much more expanded discussion that we're going to right now. But, I'll, I'll end, but did you ever hear anything like that? No. No. There's no discussion about that. In, in rabbinic literature, there's no discussion of the process of canonization, what the criteria was. Okay, yeah. Let me know. Is it safe to say that um, some... Nothing is safe in this can have anybody that wrote a book in... Can't have any nevuah because it has nevuah. In a certain sense, inspirational, close to nevuah. I'm willing to say, close to maybe even because if you did, then it's isn't it supposed to be our prayers towards a human? Well, parts of it. Let's say certain God. Like, like if if it was to that, like wouldn't even that take away? Agree. Yeah, I agree. Let's look at some examples. I agree with what you're saying. Yes, I agree with what you're saying. Let's look at some examples of what we're talking about. Now, let's begin our examples by raising the question, which we've hinted at before, why does somebody write poetry? So we discussed, to express a feeling. Something happens, it could be something trivial and mundane. Something, you see a vase of flowers, what are they, a little vase of flowers? You had a hamburger, and you're so inspired by the hamburger, or by the vase of flowers, that you want to record your feelings at having seen the vase or eating that hamburger. Well, let's look, let's look at it more, more concretely. What is the greatest source of poetic inspiration? Poetic inspiration. Greatest source. Love. Well, what, one at a time. Nature is one good answer. Okay, what else? He's rejecting love. Sorry? Love I like. I like love. That's good. That's, you're lucky you married him. Very good. Good one. Love is good. I'm going to cheat uh, no good. <laughs> How about life's events? Birth of a child. Birth of a child. That's an incredible life event. So you might be inspired to record what you felt at that moment. I was saying that before I came to class. Yeah, 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 had a child? No, we were talking about <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We were saying that the birth of a child birth because it's a miracle. And you right. Know, okay, good. I was telling my 19-year-old son. Good. Okay, let me come back to that point. 20. I'm coming back to that in a second. Now, let's say birth of a child. How about getting married? You ever see anybody who just got, who are about to get married when they're so enamored in love? We, hopefully, have all experienced that. 
And some of us will experience that, God willing. Soon? Imagine those feelings that you want to capture. Now, not everybody wants to capture those feelings. Not all of us are sensitive to that, none of us really even are aware of it. But imagine a person who has a high sensitivity and wants to capture those feelings of that life's event. The feeling you have the night of your wedding, night of your wedding. The rabbi's inspirational words. You're flying, hopefully. I'm not going to marry you. I'm not That's an incredible life event. And you want to record that. It's, it's not enough nowadays you watch a video and it's, you did it. You did record it, right. But if you didn't have a video, imagine that. Getting married and having no pictures, no video. So what do you want to do? You want to remember those emotions, those feelings. It's so important, so beautiful, so extraordinary to be in love. And it's very important for marriage in general. Therapists tell people all the time, think back when you first got married. And think about the feelings you had. Now, when she says it was horrible, you got a problem. Then you know you dealing with a difficult situation. But otherwise, you take them back and say, keep those memories, those feelings alive. Somehow. It could be, we call them anniversaries. Think about how to keep those original feelings of birth. Whenever you keep does something horrible and evil even, think about what you felt when he was born or she was born. Why do you, why? Because then you have a perspective. So you don't kill the child. So you don't, exactly. So you don't kill the child. They're up all night. They're crying. They're crying. They're crying. They're crying. They're crying. And all that. So we say, what am I do with this kid? 24 hours straight of crying. What am I do with this kid? I want to strangle this kid. But you know, why don't you? Because you want to remember those feelings of love, of involvement. So birth of a child would be that way. Mark any occasion of joy. On the other hand, Let's say you lose a child, and you need to express that. Impossible for a person, who has lost a child, for us to understand those feelings. Now, if one did have that experience, I would tell them to read Tehillim. Read about where David HaMelech lost a child, and see whether or not his feelings relate to your feelings. Illness. Person becomes ill. You read Tehillim. You read Tehillim to pray. But you also find comfort in knowing that he was deathly ill as well. And his prayers inspire you to pray as well. Let's say something like you're lost. You need a friend. And your friends abandoned you. You have nobody to turn to. That as well, in reading Tehillim, you empathize with the author, with David, all the, as you said, the joy of nature. All events in life that produce intense emotions are reasons to write a psalm or a chapter of Tehillim. Now, David was the kind of person who was a religiously sensitive soul, and therefore all of the above inspired him to create these masterpieces of religious literature. And he was able to sense the feelings, express the feelings, understand the feelings, and put them into words. Not all people can do that. Same way, not all people can paint. Not all people can write a symphony. You wonder. You hear, let's say, um, Beethoven's third symphony, Eroica. 
Why did he write that? Napoleon. Napoleon, good. Somehow, what Napoleon did aroused in him this feeling that I want to express via my music. The Ninth Symphony. Don't answer. What's the Ninth Symphony? Joy to life, right. Joy to life. Extraordinary. Something aroused in Beethoven that exuberant appreciation of what life's all about. Now we don't know what did. He didn't write notes on why he wrote the symphonies. We don't know why. But I'll tell you, when I was sick, when I was ill, when my daughter played that on the piano, it was arousing. It was, it was such a beautiful piece. It just gave us, I told her, every time I came home from my treatment, played it. The water played it. And I just felt so much better by hearing that music played. I mean, it was kind of her, her, her playing it and the music itself and everything else like that. But it was extraordinary. It was wonderful. It was overwhelming. Why did, why did uh, Mozart write Aina Kleine Nacht music? A little bit of night music. And why do you write that? So they didn't write notes on this. And you really want to know what in, in life's events inspired them to create this work of art. Not all people can do that. To write. Not all people can write a psalm to express some deep, intense emotional feeling. We all understand why you want to do that. To communicate a feeling, to communicate an emotion, to share with somebody else, to record that feeling, to express. All that's fine. But often the author of a musical work or artistic work or a song, we're not always sure as to why they wrote it. You may be writing it only for yourself to record the emotion. You might be writing it for others to share with them, to inspire them. All of that is poss- are possible. Let's look at chapter 8 of Tinulim and try to figure out the backdrop. What's the place over here? The chapter 8 is relatively easy. What page? Somebody announce the page, please. 1419. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Better than me. Page 14. 19. 19. Chapter 8 of Healing. Okay. 1419. David created a religious masterpiece. Now, before we begin this, where do I find most often the backdrop to why David wrote this particular psalm. No, not exactly. Superscript might. In other words, here you have in front of you a religious masterpiece. He doesn't tell you often enough, sometimes yes, why he wrote this. The same way that Beethoven wasn't telling you why they wrote their music. But where am I going to find life's events that are going to tell me what happened in his life. Good. The answer is the book of Samuel. The book of Shemuel, Aleph, from chapter 15 or 16 and on, through the rest of Shemuel, Aleph. Thank you. That's very nice of you. But there's a reason. I mean, this is strange. Water from heaven. I mean, <laughs> Thank you. That was nice. The question over here is, what life event inspired David to write whatever he wrote? So the answer is the book of Shemuel. Samuel 1, 15 and on, all the way through, through Samuel 2, uh, is all about David's life. So that's the broader canvas. 
in front of you is the religious expressions of those emotions and feelings. But you have to know Shemuel to understand feeling. Why do we need to know that? When we read poetry, we don't never know that. I mean, in some cases we may know something about the poet's life, but just like we don't know why Mozart wrote what he wrote. Do you want to know? Because you don't, I feel you don't really understand Beethoven's heroic. You could hear and enjoy the music, but you don't really understand me. You don't really understand. Watch out, Harvey, I'm watching. <laughs> I'm paying you for this, so get it straight. You really want to get the full sense. There's a great book. It's really important. It's a great book. What you should not read, don't read if you, or if one, has just lost a relationship. It's called The Sorrows of Young Verda by Gerta. So that person called Gerta who was able to express losing his loved one, the loved one. And it's such an inspirational work that you will cry and he was going to commit suicide because he lost this beautiful, beloved personality. It's an extraordinary work, but you can't read it alone. And if you read it alone, you wouldn't understand it completely without knowing the background of the kind of person he was. It's only by understanding the background of the person and then reading the work you understand the full impact of the work itself. Then it's a failure as a work of art. If it doesn't, you can't understand it. Thank you. It depends on your philosophy of art. No, that's the your philosophy of art. By definition of art, that the art speaks for itself. Beethoven's third speaks for itself, whether it was about Napoleon or not. Today, but he's so wrong. Beethoven would disagree. I don't think most of them. You want me to go check? Yeah, I think we should. You said they were good qualities. You told your mother. They were actually That's very true. That is very true. So I will check. That's a question which is in mind. But I don't agree. I don't. I don't think you're right because. That's one, one. I'll give you a modern day example. I, I'd rather not, because I want to know one. Okay, just, I just want to make one last point. There's a whole entire series of works called Philosophy of Art, this is with Kay Langer, where she raises that as a question. What is one's philosophy of art? Does it have to speak for itself? Or do you need a backdrop in order to understand it? Depends upon the work of art, that's true as well. But sometimes, sometimes it's the backdrop which gives intensity to understand. In other words, in other words, let's say a person. We're going to look at like another time right now. We're going to look at the psalm where David loses his child. Let's say I told you King David never lost a child, but he wrote a psalm about it. Does that change your appreciation for the psalm? Yeah, I say yes to that. Squeeze it out, Grace. Make him say yes. Squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. But it's probably not going to be good. He might be that great of an artist. He might be that great of a religious artist. He might be that great. I don't know. But in, in any case, that's a great. That's a great artist. It might be right, but, but it loses it. It loses poignancy. If verse that said never lost that that woman. Thank you. Well, you guys are amazing. But something's fishy over here. I, mean, I don't get it, but, but okay. They locked the kitchen, Rabbi. I knew that. I put two and two together. I got it. It's okay. We found the cat. But you found the cat. That's fine. Very good. So my point, my point is that Eileen and David, that yes, it might be the case that sometimes you don't need to know the backdrop. 
but sometimes the backdrop fills in the details. In other words, it may give you a different interpretation. You may appreciate Eroica or the Ninth Symphony just simply because it's beautiful music. It works as art. But there also might be a dimension that eludes you because you don't know what motivated him to reading it. So that's something we have to we could continue as going. We'll continue. The eighth, I just want to begin this chapter, sorry, then we'll go to the next class. The superscription is We don't always know what it really means. It's a psalm to King David. It's a musical composition. Now try to think about, in this psalm, what motivated him to write this. God, O Lord, O our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your splendor. Where is he? What is he doing? Well, obviously, he is looking at the heavens. Sorry? He's a pagan. Because he's saying what God is. No, that's not paganism. That's Judaism. But there is a pagan element. Certainly pagans are the same thing. We would want to find out where the pagans and us, we differ. That's really the second class. You'll see that in the second class, actually. Now, look at the next line. This is verse 3. From the mouths of infants and sucklings, you have found the strength on account of your foes to put an end to enemy and avenger. Now, not to go into what that means, but obviously I would say to you right now that he's watching his wife nurse her child. He's watching his wife nurse his child, her child. Because what happens to a child who does not know how to nurse? He dies. The child dies. If the child does not have that nursing instant, the child dies, obviously. Right? So he's watching and saying, Oh God, how great is your strength that you have taught that child the instinct to nurse. Now, David, in David's world view, if a child dies, it's not viewed as natural, it's viewed as an enemy attacking the child. Right? Illness is an enemy. He viewed illness as an enemy. So therefore, if that child, let's say the child was sick and wasn't able to nurse, if they had an infection in his mouth, there's no bad infections. The child refuses to nurse. The child becomes sickly. All of a sudden, the, chi- the child's immune system, to put it in coldly scientific terms, kicks in, and what happens? The child gets better. The child starts nursing. She says, Oh God, how great are you? The child's nurse. Nurses, child will live, therefore, against your enemies. God, you want the child to live, but as an enemy, however you view it, however he viewed it, there's no bad infection, there's no bad germs and things like that, illness. But he sees illness as an enemy that has to be defeated. Had he seen an enemy such as illness? You pray. So now the child is well. We pray the child is now well. So he says, from the mouth of the sucking infants, you established your strength against your enemies, namely illness to destroy the enemies and to avenge the enemy, namely, that which attacks my child. Now, when I see your heavens, he's obviously outside, he's probably on his porch. When do the heavens look like they are created with your fingers, very sensitively and finely? Sunset. Sunset. When does the heavens look that they're made lattice-like? Fingers, delicate, fine. Stars. So it's obviously at night, He's on his porch, his wife is nursing his child, his child is well, 
and therefore he praises God and he's overwhelmed by this when I see the heavens when they're made of your fingers the moon he sees the moon and the stars that you've established what's his religious feeling at this moment how small am I what is a human being he sees a myriad of stars out there now he didn't know that there are a billion trillion stars in the universe he didn't know that there are hundred million galaxies in the universe he didn't know that our galaxy is only hundred thousand light years long but he looks up at the heavens the scientists of course of today knew much more of astronomy than he did the, they knew they know an astounding amount of information about the universe 14 billion light years etc etc right they know that but they don't respond welcome good to see you they don't respond with the same kind of religious emotion as King David did although Einstein of course in one of his most famous moments said exactly so Einstein did have a religious inspiration at that moment that can't be random it's too perfect the laws that govern the micro universe of the atom in quantum mechanics are the same laws that govern the universe out there astoundingly enough it's, just, it's amazing the laws of gravity and electromagnetism and etc so it's too perfect God in that play even Stephen Hawking who was a classic atheist about this issue when it's been on tape and they say to him well, what happened before the Big Bang his answer only God knows quote unquote <laughs> it's the end of right and then, well, it's the end of the, right only God knows so ultimately we all come back to God in some sense but Hawking's obviously did not have that religious feeling Einstein we don't know yet we have to do a little bit more research to find out whether or not Einstein had a religious feeling I don't believe he did he came to this more on a from a mathematical scientific point of view fine but he said God okay good King David just sees the myriad of stars in the universe and he has this feeling of smallness what is a human being minus that you should take note of him oh God God created everything where is it from from Bereshit God created it all and he ends up seeing this universe out there he says my God look at it out there what am I what is a human being on the other hand he reflects and says but God you made him a little less than divine this paradox or this polarity or this dialectical tension is a religious expression of seeing the universe what is a human being so today if you were to study anything about astronomy and you read all these astronomical books then you will come away with that feeling of just imagine how small a human being is in comparison to the Milky Way galaxy which again is 100,000 times 5.9 million miles long and imagine him being compared to that you're not a set an, an insect so be careful what you step on you're not even an ant compared to all of that not even, you're not even a, a grain of sand now imagine now you're being compared to another of the 100 million galaxies what are you? on the other hand we are the only conscious life force that we know about in the universe we're the only conscious life force so we are exactly that what makes this a masterpiece is its formulation 
what makes this a religious masterpiece is the way that he's able to respond in a religious fashion to the very same phenomenon that you and I experience. Now, we may respond to this scientifically, but he responds to this religiously. And therefore, it's 3,300 years old, and yet, despite that, it still rings true to us, which is the hallmark of a classic. Ringing true, 3,000 years later, makes it into a religious masterpiece. Okay, now there's a lot more over here to do. We'd like to stop with this now and then begin second class. Do you want a three-minute break? Don't forget the almond. Yes, good point. Who wants to take people?